It's a joy to worship with you this morning. And uh, if you uh, would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We'll be continuing in Matthew today. And in your pew Bibles, that should be page 826. And as you're turning there, we'll be getting to Matthew in a moment. But uh, as you're turning there, uh, some of you may be familiar with Les Mis or Les Miserables, or probably just butchered that. I never had French in school. Uh, but I am familiar with the story, and there's this character in uh, the novel named Javert, and he represents the law. Uh, not just an officer of the French government, but a personification of the law. So his role in the story embodies the rule of law. In, in Javert's world, there is no redemption. There is no grace. There is only the rule of law. And there's one song in the, the, the Broadway musical, Stars, where Javert sings. He says, there out in the darkness, a fugitive running, fallen from God, fallen from grace. God be my witness, I shall never yield till we come face to face. He knows his way in the dark, but mine is the way of the law. Those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. And if they fall as Lucifer fell, the flames, the sword. And in those lines, we see a little bit of Javert's worldview. It's framed around the legal standard of the law. And who is this fugitive? It's Jean Valjean who personifies redemption in the story in contrast to Javert and the law. So Jean Valjean is somebody who has seen his sin, he's received grace from God, and then seeks to live in light of the grace that he's received. So Javert wants to bring down the weight of the law while Jean Valjean wants to do what's right in the eyes of God in light of new life. And so there we see a parable of two outlooks concerning the place of the law in our lives. One is a rule to follow, what we sometimes we call a didactic law, a written law, sped out in a formal rule. And uh, the other is a way to live in light of what is right, what some would call virtue. And the Bible does lay out a didactic law. We see the rule of law provided there. And it's a law that's based in, in God's character and who God is. But we also see virtue language where... Um, Doing what is right flows from the heart in obeying what God has laid out. And so we've seen over and over again how Jesus teaches on virtue throughout Matthew's gospel. Uh, There was a strong emphasis on that in the Sermon on the Mount. Yet there's also some of the rule of law there in the Sermon on the Mount as well. So you see both of those running side by side. And Jesus does not abolish the law, right? The righteous standard. Rather, he fulfills it. And so Jesus takes the righteous standard and he provides redemption in order to fulfill it. So one critique of virtue as an ethic is that it's based on a community consensus of what is right. And you've probably heard the term virtue signaling in recent years, uh, where um, even in our culture there's this idea that just going along with the crowd or trying to prove that you agree with everybody else by saying something and, but that's not the way the Bible is projecting doing what is right, 
right? God presents us with this picture of virtue from Scripture where being the kind of person that does what is right from the heart and following God, right? So uh, for the Christian, it's rooted in God's character. It's not arbitrary, right? So God's character is the standard by which we are to live. And so God shows us what is right in his eyes and so that is what informs both the, the standard of the law and it also informs how we are to, to follow in, uh, in following God from the heart. It's fixed in God's character. So the virtue je- that Jesus is pointing us to is not this arbitrary standard. It's rather what, we're, what we see is that new life in Christ is consistent with that standard. So the external standard is realized through it, life change through redemption, through coming into a new relationship with God through Christ. Now, increasingly in our own culture, we see that as people turn away from doing the right thing, we see more and more of the law being laid down, right? So the letter of the law. And we're, we become a society of Javert's in the course of this, right? We, we hold one another to account, and firmly, we want to make sure that the law is laid down on those around us without mercy. Right, so having raised this question of the law, please forgive me for taking a few minutes there at the beginning to, to discuss this. Let, let's go back into Matthew's gospel. And uh, there's these three parables that we're coming into. And... Uh, the, the first of the three is the one we're going to cover this week, of uh, the parable of the two sons. And then, coming soon, we'll be talking about the, the vineyard and the tenants, and then the wedding feast. And in each account, Jesus is raising some questions. He's raising some questions like, who are the true heirs of the kingdom? Who receives the kingdom promises? Or put another way, what makes someone acceptable to God? And really, this is all cast in, in light of the Pharisees, who he's interacting with here in this chapter. So in the, the first, which is our parable this week, he compares those who show outward adherence to the law to those who obey from the heart. In the second, he shows how the tenants reject the son, the true heir. And in the third, in the wedding feast, it's open to all who would come because there were others who were invited who had some assumption of a primacy of place or, or importance who did not come in to celebrate the wedding feast. So each account points to redemption in Christ in context of the bigger narrative of Matthew, in contrast to the positional status of the Pharisees. And so those who showed this outward obedience and wanted the benefits of the vineyard more than honoring the son... Or those who are invited to the feast, but they don't celebrate at the feast. All these accounts are really related. These people know the law, but they do not look to Christ. And they're like Javert rather than Jean Valjean. In fact, all of Matthew 21 is pointing to how those who claimed the law, in a sense, had failed. Because they rejected the Son. Remember, the theme we keep seeing throughout Matthew's gospel, we've been going through this for months and months, of Jesus is the Messiah, right? Matthew's trying to show us 
who Jesus is. And he uses different imagery and different prophecies to point out that Christ is Jesus, the Son of God, the heir of David. And so they have rejected the Messiah. And Jesus is pointing that out to them here in chapter 21. So Matthew's no longer arguing just that Jesus is the Messiah. They're pointing out the hardness of heart of these people that have rejected. Right? We, we, we saw the, the, the fig tree right, and the hardening and the, the, the fruitfulness of the fig tree. And, and we saw the, the asking of, of by whose authority do you preach in the temple? Right. And so in this specific parable of the two sons, one said they would obey and then did not. The other disobeyed and then later obeyed. So as we go through this passage, think carefully about how this parable on obedience reveals the Pharisees' reaction to and rejection of Jesus. Okay, So let's read together. Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. All right. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So, here's this Comparison between repentance on the one side, the son who changed his mind, and hypocrisy or or false obedience on the other. Which one did the father's will? Ultimately, it's the one who obeyed. So the one who obeyed is the one who is commended here in the passage. One son knew his fault and was repentant. The other did not live up to the standard that he outwardly portrayed. He feigned obedience on the outside, but on the inside was wicked. And so Jesus does this again and again. Your righteousness is not the righteousness that God requires. The parable this week is focused on obedience, but the application is tied to repentance and believing the message. And so one thing we want to resolve this week is given that the application uses this language of belief and changing your mind, What is the obedience that this is discussing in the parable? In the context of Matthew 21, they're all called to change their mind concerning who Jesus is and believe the message that he is the Messiah. So moving through this week's passage, we're going to talk about God's standard and call to obedience, that there is a call to obedience, and there is a standard that God lays out before mankind. And we're going to see that God's people obey from the heart. God calls for a change in the life of individuals. 
and to bring them into, uh, sometimes we use words like relationship, but there's more than relationship. It's a regeneration of the heart. It's a, it's a new life in Christ. And then repentance and faith in Christ are a foundation for true obedience. So to understand how can this one son who showed some, uh, some amount of obedience be called disobedient, right? Repentance and faith in Christ are a foundation for true obedience. Okay, so let's start with God's standard. Let's go back and read verses 28 through 30 again. What do you think? A man has two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. All right, so these two sons, they may not have had to work every day. Right, the, the situation here, it doesn't go into a lot of detail, but uh, it seems like you know, the father has come to them and he is asking them to work in the vineyard this particular day. And you can imagine the inner workings of a family, right? Uh, taken on a more common level, you know, go do the dishes and then the kid never gets around to doing the dishes, right? But th- this probably was a lot more work to go work in the vineyard all day. And uh, there is an urgency here. There, there's a, the placement of the word today is earlier in the sentence. It gives some emphasis to it. Today, go work in the vineyard. So even in the first sentence, we see this imperative towards obedience. We see a similar situation in other passages as well. Just a, you know, similar themes throughout Scripture. The older brother and the prodigal son who despises his brother's repentance is one. Or in the Old Testament, there's repeated calls to repentance and obedience given to Israel. And these are the ancient paths that, you know, Jeremiah spoke about in Jeremiah 6. There he called Israel to repentance and a return to the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And so ancient paths connect to what was doing right in the eyes of the Lord. So, there's lots of places where God sets out an imperative to obey, right? We see that in Deuteronomy. Uh, you can see an echo of it later in the prophets. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 1, in verse 10, the rulers of Israel are compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, they're rebellious. They're doing what is evil inside the Lord. Then we get to verse 18, and redemption is offered. God tells them uh, to obey, but he also implies some level of change in their direction. So uh, Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Since your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 25 to 27. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way just? Is not your ways that are unjust? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. The injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. So the obedient person will preserve their life. God set forth a standard for what is good, based in his own character, and his ways bring what is good. 
You know, even Paul says you know, in, in Romans 2, for all have sinned without the law, they'll also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Right? So Christ's coming does not abolish the standard of the law. The law of God does exist as an external standard. It's an ultimate rule of judgment, and all will be judged. But that does not lead us to becoming Javert. Right and his legalism. So even when setting his righteous standard, God offers redemption. It was back there in Isaiah, right? And Paul goes on in Romans as he moves from chapter two to point towards redemption in Christ. And so the Pharisees focused on that standard of the law, and they did not want to get too close to the edge of the cliff. And so they added to the law to protect people, to protect from disobeying it accidentally. Right? So they added what's often called a hedge around the law. Right? That was a way to be safe and to assure that people would have complete adherence to the law of God's righteous standard. But that had an unexpected outcome in the end. In practice, external rules can be good guides, but they do not produce a virtuous heart. So Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota nor one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So Jesus lays out this standard of the law and sets it exceedingly high. And your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that raises the same question the disciples asked Jesus just a few sections back, discussing the rich young ruler. They asked him, who then can be saved? The disciples saw this coming. They understood how exceedingly high the standard was. Who then can be saved? God's righteous standard remains intact. The law is not abolished. It's the law by which every person will be judged. And yet, the law is not where redemption is found. Instead, God makes a way. In the case of the rich young ruler, Jesus responds to them with, with God, all things are possible. Or in Matthew nine thirteen, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So how can righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Right? Because Christ's righteousness is the basis of our standing before God. The righteous standard does not produce righteousness in itself. It shows what is right and good, but God's plan is to restore humanity through the work of His Son. So the new covenant promise to bring change from the heart, right? God's standard and call to obedience remain, but that me- the means of bringing it about are through the change in the life of individuals and the response from those changed hearts is obedience. And that's God's plan of redemption. Justified by faith, renewed hearts, follow the Lord. 
And the Lord desires obedience from the heart, not just to the external standard. So let's go look at the the next verse here in verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. So the second son calls his father, sir, or Lord. He shows this outward respect, yet he did not intend to follow. He knew how to show outward obedience, all while inwardly having no intent to do what is right. The other son changed his mind, and that is the one who obeyed. So how is it that the Pharisees who focused on obedience are characterized with not intending to obey God? And how is it that those who had lived sinful lives are called obedient after a life of disobedience? What's the difference between these two? Jesus' parable explicitly references a change of mind. Each son did the opposite of what they said, The first who initially disobeyed and then went and did the work, the second son gave the pretense of obedience but did not follow through. But one of the sons changed his mind. So the obedience is tied to that change of mind. And Jesus applies that to how they responded to the message they heard. That's the application. Did they believe the message? Did they change their mind, follow based on their intent? And in this case, the differentiator was that repentance, that change of mind. So John's message was one of repentance, after all. That's an interesting connection. Right? And in the passage immediately preceding this one, right, the Pharisees reject John's authority as much as they reject Jesus' authority. And so now Jesus brings it up again here. He's ramming home the point that rejecting the message is disobedience to the Father's will. So these Pharisees had rejected Jesus. You know, by what authority do you come preach here back in the temple section ago? And then, you know, Jesus comes back and says, basically, well, what authority did John have? And they had rejected that authority too. So Jesus back in the temple was making a linkage between John's authority and Jesus's authority. And here, Jesus is using that authority of John to kind of push back a little bit. Right? You rejected John, and they reject Jesus too. So there's a correspondence between the two. So he asked them where John's authority came from, and they could not answer. And neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, Jesus said. And then in this week's passage... You did not believe John. And so Jesus rams it home with this this week's parable that, that rejection, that rejection of the authority of John and Jesus is disobedience to the Father, right? For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. The Pharisees who do not repent will not enter the kingdom The tax collectors and prostitutes who do change their minds will enter the kingdom. So even though they had a life of sin before, those who change their mind will enter the kingdom of God before the Pharisees. The approach 
the Pharisees took to add to the law ended up adding more weight to the law, like Javert. But it does not produce righteousness. So our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. But adding to the law will not get us there. So what's the difference? What are the Pharisees missing? The Pharisees did not change their mind concerning John's message. And they certainly weren't going to change their minds concerning Jesus' message. They weren't going to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Their lack of repentance and faith was not just a rejection of John. It was also a rejection of Jesus. And that's the point of all these passages in Matthew 21 and 22. Taken together, there's a big story arc here. Right? They reject the Son. Matthew spent 20 chapters showing us that Jesus is the Messiah. And now it's come to the end of the line. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to accomplish redemption. And given all the evidence of who Jesus is, they reject him. Jesus wants to make clear to them what they've done and show the implications of their lack of belief. So some believed the message and turned to Christ. And for the prostitutes and tax collectors, they were in sin and disobedience. And then they changed their perspective and believed John's message. But the law did not lead these Pharisees to Christ. They remained unrepentant, and Jesus accuses them of being disobedient because they refused to change their mind concerning the Son. And so repentance is a change of mind concerning your previous behavior combined with an intent to change your future behavior. This comes from seeing things differently than you did before. You see your sin for what it is. You see the goodness of God's ways and the importance of following them. But repentance itself is a fruit of faith, right? What then is the place of the law in relation to faith, right? Paul discusses this in Galatians 2, or sorry, Galatians 3, uh, verse 24. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. The law has its place as a standard, it shows us what is right, but God's people obey from the heart. There's many reasons why people might adhere to a law. Right? They do what they're told. Or they fear what others might think. Or they want to adhere to the expectations of the group that they're in. All right? That's an external standard. Or they want to earn some other prize, some practical benefit. And that's a pragmatic standard. But God's people obey because they believe God's ways are right. So now, these Pharisees may have believed just that, that obedience to God is right, but they refuse to change their mind concerning Jesus. And he accounts that as disobedience. And when John delivered the message, they didn't believe it. When the tax collectors and prostitutes believed, they refused to do so. And when Jesus came to them, they resisted the Son of God. And so Christ says that others would go in the kingdom before them because they would not change their mind. So faith in Christ and the fruit of repentance are a true foundation for obedience. Let's look at the, the last verse here. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Remember how this passage builds on the last one. 
right? They didn't receive John's message, and so they didn't receive Jesus' message either. Therefore, Jesus compares them to the second son, who showed outward obedience without intent to follow, verbalizing obedience while having an unbelieving and disobedient heart. And so the next two parables give us a little more context for the object of their faith, right? The son of the vineyard owner and the wedding feast. Christ is pointing them towards himself, right? This parable stresses obedience, but it focuses on a change of mind. And in the context of Matthew 21, it looks forward to faith in Christ. Their outward obedience is not true obedience, right? Their lack of faith, their unwillingness to change their mind concerning God's plan for redemption in Christ was counted as disobedience, and obedience is a visible fruit, right? The, the fruit of the Spirit is laid out in Galatians and Colossians and elsewhere. It's an indicator of the heart within. The idea that, um, that fruit will have a source somewhere, right? The unregenerate heart puts out bad fruit. It's unwilling to do the will of the Father. And so the deeds of the flesh from Galatians are bad fruit, it's not just a random occurrence, right? Tree will act according to its nature. We saw that with the fig tree just a few weeks ago. We saw the imagery of Jesus with the, uh, in John's gospel with the vine and the branches, right? You will not bear fruit apart from the vine. It's the same with Psalm 1, right? The tree planted by streams of water will yield its fruit in season. Its leaf will not wither. One of the more common images in Scripture is this image of fruit, as a sign of life. And we see this directed at the Pharisees back in Matthew 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So some have argued that someone may believe and have zero fruit, and they may do this to avoid legalism. The legalism is Javert, and focus on faith that leads to salvation. And so they conceptualize faith apart from fruit, but they're missing the whole point of regeneration and renewal coming from the heart, right? That comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. Faith in Christ is on the front end of that union with Christ, which comes by faith and is the source of new life. But new life itself is a fruit of a changed heart. And that's the point James makes in his epistle when he says that uh, faith that saves us never alone. He's not saying we're saved by works, but he's saying that a changed heart will love what God loves will agree with what God agrees with. So we believe in faith alone, but that does not allow us to justify a false convert or give assurance to somebody who has no sign of spiritual life in them. But people will act according to their nature. There's no spiritual interest if somebody has no desire to do the, the will of God in their life if there's no desire for what God values, no love for our Lord, then that's a bad sign. It's a bad sign spiritually. And here we have these Pharisees that outwardly seek to hold the standard of the law while rejecting the Son. Right? Their righteousness is not sufficient. Right? They, they think that it is. And we're reminded again and again that true obedience comes from the heart. 
So though they follow the law, they do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance in the kind of fruit that Jesus is talking about in Matthew's gospel. So Christ himself says, out of the heart the mouth speaks. Right? The heart is the source of our actions. And what we say with our mouths reveals what's in our heart. Right? So saving faith is found alongside a regenerate heart. And this is done by the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? We, I'm sure all of you are familiar with Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of works we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The work of God in the life of a new believer brings about regeneration and renewal. So, why am I talking about fruit? Is this a detour? No, it's, this parable is about obedience, about doing what is right. And those who believed the message obeyed. But their entrance to the kingdom before the Pharisees was because they believed the message concerning the Son. Right? Their faith is the foundation for true obedience before the Father. Looking to the Son of God is the one thing the Pharisees would not do. And Jesus calls them disobedient because of it. And their disobedience is from the heart. They refuse to change their mind concerning the Son of God. So back in Matthew 16, I spoke about the importance of the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And that is how he builds his church. United in that common confession that Jesus is the Christ. That confession is what the Pharisees lacked. Right? They had a level of obedience to the standard of the law, but they lacked faith and repentance that yielded genuine obedience from the heart. So even if someone attempts great obedience to the law of God but rejects the Son, Jesus calls that disobedience. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Right? That's Jesus' explanation of the parable. Right? And it's only later that the Pharisees perceive, oh, maybe he's talking about us. Right? The Pharisees presumed their own status before God. They had a, a bit of presumption here coming into this conversation. They assumed their place, very much like the wedding guest we've, we've seen, uh, we'll see in a, in a little bit, in a few weeks. And yet Jesus says that the tax collectors and prostitutes would enter the kingdom before them. So outward adherence to the law can be faked, even for a time. But ultimately, they're condemned for their refusal to recognize the Son. And so what we see here is the reality of God's standard, that God expects a standard, and that standard is certainly what the, the Pharisees were thinking of, right? but God desired obedience from, from the heart. Right? God desires a change of mind concerning who God is, concerning who Christ the Son is. Right? And the foundation for true obedience is that confession that Jesus is the Christ, and and coming to a point where you uh, place your faith in Christ. And so what does that say about us? Do we presume our place before our Lord? Do we assume our own righteousness? Are we a bunch of Javers bringing the flame and the sword down on those who we see as unlawful? Remember, 
Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Does your righteousness meet that standard? No. Right? The psalmist says, no one does good, not even one. No one is righteous. Who then can be saved? There's one whose righteousness meets God's standard. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Do you look to the Son? Right? We come to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. So true obedience to God, the Father, begins with confessing Jesus as the Christ and finding our hope for redemption in him. And God does set a righteous standard. Right? He created us to live in light of what is right in his eyes. Yet those who genuinely follow him do so from the heart. Right? Faith in Christ is a foundation for true obedience. Look to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Change your mind concerning the Son. Right? Believe that he is the Savior and King and follow him. Okay. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to, um, to confess Jesus as the Christ. To be among those who, in humility, realize that our righteousness is not the righteousness that you require. But with gratitude, we stand before you through the work of Christ. So, Lord, may we be among those who are willing to to change our mind and to trust you, knowing that our only hope in life and death is Christ, our Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.